to find some peace and quiet So the bathroom is where I go mm-hmm. Me and my phone on the throne Checking YouTube, hitting like on some videos mm-hmm. I know this won't win me dad of the year But come on, give me a chance now If the roll is done, I grab another one Set it right, set it overhand Now I'm singing like you know I don't want much I even love handmade crafts made of macaroni Come on now, you should know me Sometimes I might eat too much No worry about my weight Got the dad bod rocking on me Sketches on my feet Cargo shorts look good on me I'm a dad, that's what I do I get the groceries when I'm asked to The hair on my head's getting thin, that's true But I got lots on my body Me and your mom said clean your room But I'll probably forget about it real, real soon You can find me with a beer by the barbecue I'm a dad, that's what I do. 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 You can find me with a beer by the barbecue. I'm a dad, that's what I do. <laughs> Well, we welcome you to Horizon, and we wish all the dads that are with us today a very happy uh, Father's Day. I just realized I'm wearing Skechers, so now I'm part of the video. Wow. So, uh, you know, uh, my dad is 86 years old and, and, and doing uh, just, just kicking butt. He's doing great. He just called me, uh, uh, or I told, called him Friday on my way to my, uh, my gig, and he had just gotten to Cape Cod on Wednesday from Cleveland, where he spends half the summer, and... Uh, he said he had left Wednesday morning at, at 5.30 a.m. and got to his house in Massachusetts at 10 to 5 in the evening. Not saying that's a great idea, but at least Dad's a, I'm very thankful he's got a new brand new SUV with bells and whistles and alarms that tell you when you're changing lanes and everything. So that's 730 miles. And uh, nonstop, he said, I stopped to go to the bathroom and get a sandwich. That's what he said. So. You know, I, I love my conversations with my dad. I, I, he's he's my, by far my best friend in the world. I, I still call him at least once a week. And uh, I remember a, a few years back on a, on a Father's Day message we had here, I, uh, I had mentioned a, a story that I had called him in the afternoon. And he answered the phone. He said, Ken, everything okay? And I said, yeah, I'm just having kind of a dad moment, and I wanted to call you. And he says, what's up? I said, well, I'm standing in the first garage I've ever owned, and I'm drinking a cold beer watching... Uh, my boy cut the grass. And uh, a few minutes, he said, hang on a second. A couple seconds later, I heard on the other end of the phone, and we had a, we had a 300-mile uh, shared beer there. And, uh, you know, those are great conversations. But I can also remember being a teenager and giving him a pretty rough go when I had it all figured out and uh, figured he couldn't possibly know anything about what I was going through, and I had a better way to get there. And I got four kids, and three of them were boys. And with the least with the boys, I've, I've had every one of them size me up at one point when we were having an argument, and I, I could see it in their eye. They're thinking, I could, I could take this joker, you know. <laughs> but fortunately, it never came to that. But that's this next song we'd like to do for you. is kind of about that tension about a boy becoming a man and that struggle where he's, he's trying to find his footing in the world and uh, still hearing advice from his dad. Well, it is an amazing song about a legacy of a father speaking to a son about what life is really about, how impact really occurs. 
As we finish up our training manual series uh, with a focus on Father's Day today, I want to look at, as we've been looking at David's life, right, he started with, with Goliath and then he learned some things along the way and he's been fighting for legacy, fighting for, for being a son and, and fighting for adventure and fighting for work and, and fighting for character. Now he's going to fight for influence and legacy, how to leave words, how to leave a life, how to leave an impact that transcends himself. So much so that on his deathbed, he's going to turn to his son and he's going to say this, Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth, but I want you to prove yourself a man. And he defines what it is to be a leader, what it is to be a man, what it is to be somebody who serves others. He says, I want you to understand who God is, walk out his statutes, don't make your life about you. Use your resources, use your strengths, use everything you have to serve others, to care for others, to protect others. And if you do so, you will be fulfilling a promise God made to me that one day one of my sons would be on the throne. If he didn't turn to the left or to the right, he would prosper everywhere he went. I mean, that's a legacy that transcended and rippled through time for generations. I read some, uh, some interviews this week of CEOs who started their own company, who talked about the impact their fathers and stepfathers had and the words they gave to them that transcended and speak to them even in the middle of business. Let me give you a couple of them. Here's one I read. This is Dana. She's owns an IT consulting firm. When I was starting my firm, Accessibility Partners, my best lesson came from my stepfather. Even stepfathers who have to walk that awkward dance can leave a legacy. She said, my stepfather said to me two words, everything counts. As I built my business, I realized that applies to everywhere. Serving other people, keeping excellence up with old clients, new clients. That legacy of those words have shaped my business as a CEO. Everything counts. I saw another uh, interview from a woman who started a company, and her company is called Owl's Brew. She said, my dad was an asker of great questions, and he taught me how to be thoughtful. He taught me how to be open and teachable to other people's opinions. He taught me that no matter how sure I was of my own decisions, I would benefit from asking others for their thoughts. My father taught me to welcome other points of view as a way to hone my own thinking and also to gain more perspective. And here was a father who taught a young woman to have confidence, to build a business, to be humble, to even when you're sure, make sure you're getting additional wisdom. This is a legacy left and transcending beyond his words. Then I saw another one that's a little grittier. I like this one too. This woman talked about the impact of her father. She said, in this field that's heavily dominated by men, Treasure Hines cracks a smile when she thinks of the advice from her father. Illegitimum non carbonum. Sorry if you know Latin, it's probably totally off. Which is Latin for, don't let the bastards grind you down. It's a bold attitude that also helps inspire her design work, encouraging her to think more freely about what's possible in product design. The idea that life's going to be tough and you're going to have to fight and you're going to have to battle, but it's worth it. Don't let life grind you down. I think we all want to leave a legacy. We all want to have an impact. But today we're going to look at David in his last hours, his last moments, his last big mistakes, what he learned about legacy. And what we're going to discover today is that there's a great thing about leaving a legacy. 
And there's something very satisfying about building your own legacy. But building your own legacy will never, 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 never be as satisfying as being an ambassador of a legacy. Being a builder of a legacy will never satisfy as much as being an ambassador of a legacy. What's the difference? What do you mean? Well, think of a king. A king comes and says, I, I want to build a kingdom so people remember me. And, and you hear people say this even today. Presidents will say this, right? What's my legacy? I want to be remembered for my legacy. And, and as you hear them talk about it, you think, well, this is really all about you. Whatever good things you're doing, what you're really primarily concerned about is building your name. And so woven into your legacy is a focus on yourself. And a king is that way. How can I build a kingdom and build an army? And how can I be known for generations for what I have done? And, and that can be satisfying, but it will never be as satisfying as that same king who sends out an ambassador and says, I want you to extend the, the priorities and principles of my kingdom. Expand it as far and as wide as you can. Serve as many people as possible. And I want the attributes of my kingdom to touch everyone that they will know how to love, how to have joy, how to have peace, how to exalt in kindness, how to serve one another, how to be others-focused in everything they do. And as an ambassador, it's not about you. You want to make the king look good. You can still be ambitious. You can still be competitive. But your goal is not to make you look good. It's to extend the kingdom. And so it can be far more satisfying because built into your mission and legacy is not the desire to exalt yourself, but to exalt something bigger than yourself. And that's where we find David at the end of his life. God told him to build a great city that would serve and care for the poor, provide jobs, provide opportunities. That God said, I have put you as a king, but you're not really a king. You're an ambassador of my kingdom. And I put you in this position with this power and with this influence, not to glorify yourself, not to exalt yourself, but to build a city, to build a movement, to build an organization that will let people see what my kingdom is like. David, you're an ambassador of my kingdom. But at the end of his life, he begins to move from being an ambassador of God's kingdom, seeing his life as a, as a mission from God, to beginning to make it about himself. And with that comes two questions that I think we can ask ourselves. Are we a builder of our own legacy? Are we an ambassador of a greater legacy? The first question we have to ask ourselves is, what's our motivation? What's motivating you to want to have an impact? What's motivating you to want to make a name for yourself? What's your real motivation? Because David is sitting there one day and saying, I've trusted in God in amazing circumstances. My father-in-law tried to kill me. I trusted God. You know, I, I lost my wife for many years because kind of my father-in-law kidnapped her. And, and, and I trusted God and he worked through. Amazing ways I've trusted God. I made some terrible mistakes. I had an affair. God forgave me and I had to pay the consequences of that. But at the end of his life, he says, you know what I really need? I need to know how many people are in my army. So he turns to his, it doesn't seem like a big question, right? It doesn't have a problem. But the Bible says this is his last temptation. It's not about killing somebody. It's not about lusting after somebody. His last temptation is that he's tempted to depend on a number instead of God. So he turns to his buddy, his general, he's been with for many, many years, says, Joab, I, I need to know the number of fighting men in my troops. Which seems rather innocuous. I think the emphasis, though, is in the word I. I may know. 
And maybe that number would make him feel like he was doing better than under kingdoms. Maybe he would say, I don't need to trust in God anymore because I've got a big army anymore. Whatever it is about this number, David has switched from building his own castle as his motivation rather than serving a greater kingdom. David's become an opera singer. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. What's my number? Me, 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 me. And his friend and general for many years recognizes something's off. Something's off base. He turns to him and says, hey, um, why does my lord the king want this? What's your motivation? What's driving this? Because this is odd. Not that there's anything wrong with counting, but there's something about your motivation here that seems to be off. That's the first thing to check yourself, whether you're a builder or an ambassador of a legacy, is what's driving you. I talked to a friend about a year ago, known him for about 20 years, he's in his uh, mid to late 60s. He said, Chad, I just am at a stage in my life that I look back on my career and so much of what I did was about me, my marriage. In my career, I built an organization on my strengths to make me look good. I didn't say it that way, but really when I reflect on it, and I look back at those organizations I left, and they're, they're a shell of what they once were because I built it to make me look good, not to extend beyond me. He said, and I blew up my first marriage, as you know, and I said, I remember. He said, and I got 30-year-old daughters who I'm not sure will ever trust men because of what I did. And now I'm remarried and I got young boys and, and I want to leave a legacy in teaching them how to be a real man, teaching them how to really serve a woman, how to really give of yourself. He said, I am determined to take the next 10 years of my life in this organization, which was doing incredibly well, to make it bigger than myself. I'm motivated now to create principles and a company and a business and it's not about me, it's about serving other people as the primary goal. I was wrestling with his motivation. The second question you can ask yourself is, what is your metrics? <laughs> if you want to be successful, what's, the, what's your metrics for defining success? David has determined that there is a number that can satisfy his soul. Do you think there's a number you can build that will satisfy your soul? Because David does. What is it you count what is it you count on? It's more than just something you like, more than just something you prefer, more than something that just motivates you. You've made that number your identity. I am the number of my troops. I am the number of likes I have. I am the number, if I could just get my weight to that number, I would finally be satisfied. If I could just get back to that number, if I could just fit into that size clothes, if I could just get that amount in my savings account, if I could just make that much money, if I could just get a client at that size, or if I could just hit the quarterly numbers and hit that mark. And instead of that just being a goal you pursue, it has become the definition of who you are. And what I want to propose to you is if you think you can build a number that can satisfy your soul, I'm not sure how well you know your soul. Because you will eventually hit that number and you will find that it is very satisfying for about a week, maybe a month. And then you're like, what's next? Or you're going to feel the pressure. You said, I'm going to work and work and work so I can finally hit quarter. I'll hit that number and you hit that number. And it's not just the exception, way to go, you did it once. It's the new norm. You got to hit that number every quarter now. Isn't it interesting that as we get older, we begin to count different things? 
You ask people what's important to them and they begin to count their kids or count their grandkids. And then you start realizing how frail we are. And as you get older in life, you start counting very different things, right? You start counting your weight. You start counting the number of hairs you've lost. Then you count the number of hairs you have left. (laughs) Then the number you're obsessed with is your blood sugar number or your blood pressure number. And all of a sudden you realize, well, the things I'm counting are not the things I wanted to be counting. I watched this video a couple months ago that brought a lot of joy into my life for Father's Day as this man's wrestling with the deterioration of the number in his life at 40 that isn't exactly what he thought he'd be doing at 40. Let's watch. I close my eyes to go to sleep, but now that I'm over 40, oh, the nights are long. It's like my warranty has lapsed, and all my parts have turned to crap. Everything feels wrong. Don't forget that the kids are acting crazy. And they've been in our room a dozen times. Yeah, my prostate really isn't healthy. I gotta go to pee a bunch of times Then every night I lie in bed My shoulders one leg feels dead A million things are keeping me awake And yeah, I'm snoring once again So bad the bed is shaking A million things are keeping me awake That is too true, sadly, too true. But I want to propose to you, whatever that number is, whether you've hit that number and now your whole life is defined by that number. You remember hitting that number in your golf game, and from this point on, every golf game is determined by that number, isn't it? You hit that number and your weight, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, now the pressure's on. I can't gain that back. I can't, I, I can't lose what, what I've already lost. Who am I if I'm not in that size? Who am I if, if I, my blood pressure goes higher? Who am I if this continues to happen? And that brings us to our second characteristic, which really this starts to get really practical, is that you are more than a number. David was more than a number. And, and what seemed like a simple exercise of numbering was actually... David putting a number in the place of God. That number has become his real God, his real source of peace, his real source of strength, his real source of identity. And what we're going to find in David's journey is that a satisfying legacy can only be built by not focusing on building it. What? Yeah, a satisfying legacy can only be built by not focusing on building it. Because the minute you want to build your legacy, leave a name for yourself, you have introduced a contaminant into your legacy, which is self-centeredness. Because it's about you. But if you want to build a satisfying legacy, the nature of it being satisfying is it's not about you. It transcends you. 
which is why the word legacy comes from a 14th century word, legasa, which actually means one who is sent. A body of person sent on a mission is what a legacy is. You're sent by something else. You're part of a grander vision, something not temporal, not just about you. You're an ambassador of something. You're an envoy, a deputy of something bigger than you. You're sent with a commission, appointed as a deputy to do great things, to accomplish great things. That your soul is so deep, it needs to be satisfied by being tied into something bigger than and greater than yourself. Which is why when you focus on doing something bigger than yourself and it's not about you, you end up leaving a legacy. Remember one of the first prayer breakfasts after September 11th. George Bush was giving a speech and people were looking for comfort, wisdom, understanding. And he tied that speech to a principle from the Bible. He said, but here's what we know. We're going to fight, for, fight against evil but we can hold to this promise that God works all things together for good to those who love him. And we're going to be motivated that whatever comes our way, we're going to bring good out of this evil situation. He made his way back and he sat down. It was interesting, his father was there who knew the pressures of being a president, the, the pressures of being at these critical moments and saying the right thing. And his dad came over next to him and sat down, put his hand on him looked his son in the eyes and just gave him that nod, well done. Because you can be the president of the United States, you can be the head of an organization, you still long for the nod of a father to say you're doing something bigger than yourself, you're doing something that matters. And David's buddy Joab decides to pull him aside and say, can we talk? David, come here. He brings David over and he says, David, the number's not really the problem. It's what's ever motivating the number. I hope that God multiplies the number of, of soldiers we have by a hundredfold. But I really want to ask you to, to ask yourself that you might see what's motivating you. Because there's something motivating you here that is contaminating what's going on. And I don't know if you know what it is, but I just would ask you as a friend to think about what's motivating your legacy. Is it more about you or is it more about what we set out to do, which is to build something bigger than ourselves? The way you build a legacy, David, is by serving the greater kingdom, not making it about you. I'll give you an example. Think of Todd. Todd and Lisa have been married only a few years. She was pregnant for the first time with the first child. He was heading off to business, and he got on an airplane that day, and he took off. And as he was flying through the airplane, all of a sudden, a moment of crisis occurred. Terrorists took over that airplane. And as they did... He didn't say to himself, I hope I'm remembered many years from now as a man who left a legacy. What could I do here and how strategically could I make sure I have a name for myself? He said to himself, I think I'm in a unique opportunity that I can protect people, that I can come against evil. He had a couple other people he gathered together and they prayed the Lord's Prayer that they would have courage. He got on the phone with his wife from the airplane and said, honey, I love you. I may never see you again, but I've got to use this opportunity to defend and protect against evil. God, help me, Jesus. Let's roll. Click. And that man, Todd Beamer, that you may know, 
where that phrase, let's roll, is the one that fought with several other people against the terrorists and took that third plane down that kept it from taking out another building and killing thousands. He now has a legacy of giving of himself, of protecting others, of caring for us, of being in a moment and saying, not what can I do to make a name for myself, but what can I do to serve others? He built a lasting legacy by not focusing on building his legacy. Because that contaminant of self spoils the very thing we're trying to build. And that's what happens with David. As David is focused on numbers, a plague breaks out. And this plague that breaks out causes him distress. In fact, David says to Gad the prophet, I'm in great distress. I thought this number would satisfy and it hasn't satisfied. I thought this number would be it. It's not it. God, I want to fall into your hands. Be merciful to me. Help me. A plague breaks out. And all of a sudden, a man who's focused on numbers begins to lose numbers. 70,000 men die, and all of a sudden, that number that was so important to him is going down. His weight's going up, his sails are going down, his army numbers are going down. A man so focused on numbers, and now he's wrestling with his numbers going down. And here's what happens, maybe not a literal plague, but when you focus on a number to the point at which it defines your identity, it releases a plague into the rest of your life. I'll give you an example. So often, uh, you know, often, that's too strong. Occasionally, I will think about how to serve my wife. And as I occasionally think about how to save my wife, I will say to myself, what would my wife want me to do today? And so I'll think, oh, she's mentioned this or that. And so I'll, I'll do this and I'll go over and, and get a little of that done or work on this project. And then she'll walk in the door later that day. And I'm waiting. Finally, I just say it. Did you notice? Did you notice what I did? Did you notice what I did? Did you notice how well I've served you? Did you notice how well I've prioritized you? Did you notice all I've done for you? And yes, I have. But now the question, the plague begins to get in the back of her mind. Did you really do this to serve me? Or did you do this to extract appreciation from me? Both. The very nature of focusing not just on serving for the sake of serving, but serving to make it about me, what I do, what kind of husband I am, that I would do this kind of thing, contaminates and releases a plague. And the same thing, you focus on a number in business, and I promise you it releases a plague into your health when it defines you. It releases a plague into things you care about, your marriage and your family. The, the things end up being contaminated by everything's about that number. But you take that one out and plug in your marriage. If you make your marriage the focal point of your life, you'll crush it under the weight of expectations because your soul is too big that even a great marriage can't satisfy it and it will crumble under the weight. You are more than a number. The number of dates you have, the number of times you make love, the number of years you've been married, you are more than that and even a great marriage will not satisfy and it releases a plague that contaminates and destroys the very things you care about. And that's what David is wrestling with here. He's wrestling with what does that look like and what does it mean and how can, I, how can I work in that and through that. I've been wrestling with that. I, speaking of numbers, I went to the doctor recently and I just turned 45, so I thought it'd be important to get some blood work done and some other pieces. And some things said, hey, you're really healthy. Some things said, warning, warning, whoa, wow. I was talking to the doctor. I said, well, the issue is I don't want to just be healthy in 10 years. I need to be optimal in 10 years. Because i got a special needs son who just turned nine. And he's developmentally about two and a half. So when he's 30, he'll be five. And when he's 40, he'll be seven, ten-ish. Depends on the tracking. 
And he's getting, he's already strong. He's stronger. I said, doctor, I, I have to be at my optimal help in 10 years. Why? Because it's not about me. I need to look good. I need to, I need. Those are all fine things. God, you, you put Quinn in my life and, and you've asked me to be a, a, an ambassador of your kingdom to serve him and to care for him and protect him and take care of him. I need to do some things in my life to make sure that I can be the dad that he needs me to be so I can be part of the kingdom you've asked me to reign over. And there are some moments of fear and there's some moments of uncertainty. I can't tell you how many times as we, Beth and I think about the future and we think about all the uncertainty and like what are we going to do and how are we going to do it and what does that look like? But part of what I've been thinking about is, God, I, I need to be a faithful ambassador to this legacy, not the legacy I thought I would have, but the legacy you've called me to. And I'm trying to connect my struggles and connect my decisions to the higher calling he has on me. And that's what David has to do. Because this plague that he's released, and the whole part of the Bible is not worth it, take too long to explain, but this plague becomes because he's put something in the place of God. And the consequences of that is that he has got to make some things right. And he does that through a real simple concept. He begins to connect his plans to God's plans. He begins from being a builder of his own legacy to being an ambassador of God's legacy. And he makes this connection. And I think it's the same connection you and I can make. And I want you to notice the difference where at the beginning of this chapter, he says, I, 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 me, 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 one, two, three, four, eight hundred thousand, ah, 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 that will make me happy. He's now going to shift from a self-focus, me, 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 to an other's focus. He's now beginning to see how this contaminant, this plague released because of his actions are hurting people he cares about. So he says, I, I got I to gotta get right with God. By counting? By putting a number in the place of God. He starts to realize that that's a big deal. We all get a list of big deals, right? Oh, big deals when you murder people, big deals when you... The biggest deal in the Bible is when you put something in the place of God. This is the biggest deal, God says. You put a number in place of me. Really? Yeah. And so David decides he needs to turn he needs to agree with. He needs to ask for forgiveness for. He starts to realize the ramifications of this. So he says, I want to go buy a piece of property. And I want to offer a sacrifice. And on that sacrifice, I want to ask God for forgiveness for what I've done and the people I've hurt. But he wants to buy this specific piece of property. I'll get into why in a second. And so he turns to this man, kind of a weird name, Aruna. And he says, Aruna, I'd like to buy your piece of property. Because I need to offer a sacrifice to stop this plague in order to help other people. And, and look at that phrase. I want to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord so the plague may be withdrawn. He's starting to think about other people. The plague will be withdrawn from the people. He's starting to move back from I'm building a kingdom about my numbers. And my numbers have been going down. To I need to serve other people. I need to be ambassador of caring for the people you entrusted me to, the people you told me that, that was, it was my job to take care of. And I need to do that by getting myself right with God and my kingdom right with God. So he, the man's so impressed that the king would do this. He says, tell you what, I'll give you the land. If we're, if we're about saving lives and serving other people and caring for them, I'll just give you the land. And the king says, King David says this, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which cost me nothing and now his numbers are going down again 
Before the numbers were going down of the, the number of battle-ready people in his kingdom, now he says, I want to give from my treasury, give from my gold, give, give from my silver. I'm not going to use the things I've been storing up in my storehouse, and I'm going to use it to serve others, help others, protect others. He's going to find his life by losing it and giving it away. So he buys this piece of land, but this isn't any piece of land. Quick little Bible overview here. He is buying what's known as the Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was a mountain. That's why it was called Mount Moriah. But Mount Moriah was a mountain that was once climbed by Abraham. Abraham climbed that mountain with an only begotten son, Isaac. And God said to Abraham, are you willing to wrestle with whether or not you've made your family and your son more important than me? Are you willing to walk up this mountain with your son to show that only I am the most important thing in your life, not your son? And Abraham walks that mountain to Mount Uriah, Moriah rather, and God takes his only begotten son, given in love, and instead of sacrifices, Abraham, don't sacrifice your son. I never, I'm against child sacrifice. I just want to make sure you knew that I'm number one, not your family, not your kids. And he finds a scapegoat in the shrubbery, a scapegoat in the shrubbery. And he uses the scapegoat, and that becomes the exchange, that that scapegoat takes the penalty or the reminder of what happens when we put something in the place of God. That same location in history is where David is when he sets the sacrifice. We know that because he will turn to his son Solomon and say, hey, one day I'd like you to build a temple, and I've been saving up a legacy. I've got money in the storehouse. I've got plans made. I want to build a temple that people can come to this mountain. Now, you'd think he'd want to ignore this place. Like, you know what? There was a time I made a mistake with Bathsheba. I don't want to talk about it. He writes a whole journal in the Bible about it. Hey, there's a time I killed somebody unjustly as a king. He writes a journal entry about it for all to know. You'd think he'd want to hide this. My consequences of my decision in leadership is that I didn't want people to know what happened here. He says, no, opposite. I want everyone to know that whatever you've done, whatever you've done wrong, whatever you put in the place of God, this is Mercy Mountain. This is a place that God can forgive you. God can work here. God can move in your life. No matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, God works. And so they build the city of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, the same place Abraham was going <coughs> to sacrifice Isaac. And Solomon then, of all the places within the mountain and in, in city of Jerusalem, he builds the temple on the very location that David had made this sacrifice, the very location that Abraham had had this encounter with God. So that all would know that whatever you've put in the place of God, you need to, you need to wrestle with that. It's going to cause a contaminant in your life. But God can forgive you for it. And this can be your mercy mountain. Whatever mistakes you've made, whatever ways you thought you could be satisfied. Now let's fast forward another thousand years, because a thousand years later, there will be a man who claims to be God, coming from heaven to earth, and he will come into the exact same city. The temple will be a little bit bigger, because Herod rebuilt it after Solomon's was destroyed, but it's in the exact same location, on the exact same mountain, in the exact same city. 
And there will be a man who comes and claims to be from God, and he will say, I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. I have come not to, to, to be served, but to serve. I'm going to find my life by losing my life. It is better to give than it is to receive. And he will leave a legacy that will transcend every nation through the history line for generations upon generations, not because he focused on building a legacy, but because he didn't focus on building his own legacy. He says to his father, not my will but your will be done and he will be marched all around Mount Moriah and just outside that temple just outside the outer walls and he will be crucified in the exact same mountain on Mount Moriah now you may not be a believer in the Bible and I would just encourage you as you wrestle with this stuff maybe there was 2,000 years of just genius-level, treasure-hunt, national treasure-type of plot-line thinker, conspiracy theory, putting all this in the same location at the exact same spot. Maybe. Well, that's pretty amazing. That Mercy Mountain for Abraham is the same Mercy Mountain for David, the same Mercy Mountain for Solomon, the same Mercy Mountain that Jesus came, and all along the way it's been always about serving others as a way to find purpose and meaning and legacy, not making it about yourself. So how do you and I connect our plans to a higher purpose, a grander vision, something eternal? There's a lot of ways we can do that. I talked to a friend this week 15 years ago, when I first met him, and he said, you know, I'm going through a tough time in my marriage. The kids are heading off to college, and, and quite frankly, I'm kind of done. Our marriage isn't what I thought it would be. I didn't think it hasn't lived up to my expectations, and I certainly haven't lived up to hers, and I'm ready to give up. I don't know what he was counting at the time. Maybe he was counting the number of fights they had, the number of years he'd been unhappy, the number of times they weren't making love. I don't know what he was counting, but there was something in the number that said, I, I just got to give up. I got, I got very few years left. This is a good transition point to give up my marriage. There was an older man that came to him and said, don't you think about this being about you. You're an ambassador of a legacy. There's a king who sent you into this relationship to love selflessly to fight for your marriage, to fight for your kids, to overcome your own selfishness, to, to pursue selflessness. There is a God who's got you in this marriage, not to be about you, but to be about you serving. And he goes, I was where you were at 45, 48. And I'm telling you, you are at the crust. This is not the time to give up. This is the time to fight for the sake of your kids and your grandkids, to make this work I talked to my friend this week and he said, I'm so glad I made that decision to fight, to connect what I was wrestling with, what I was struggling with, what wasn't happening and what was happening to a greater purpose that I'm an ambassador of God's kingdom in my marriage and in my family. And over the years, I've watched his Facebook page. In the early days, he's got a lake house. He loves to go down with, with, with friends. It would be he and his wife and, and their kids. And over the years, it was their kids and a spouse. And then a kid's and two spouses. Then a kid's and two spouses and a grandchild. And then a second grandchild and a third grandchild. And his most recent Facebook post, he put, I think I'm going to need a bigger dock. And he said, I'm so glad that I fought 
to bring God's meaning and purpose into my marriage because I would have missed out on a legacy of kids and grandkids and the way in which we fought through this challenging time in our marriage so that we could leave a legacy that I'm now part of. I'm not the king of the kingdom. I'm an ambassador of a kingdom. And maybe for business, it's connecting the dots between what God's called you to do and why God would have your business and have you, you with your skills and your resources and your networks in this city at this time. How can you use it? Yes, to provide jobs for people and to care for people and to treat people well. That's a huge part of connecting what you're doing to the kingdom. To see every human being you serve and work with as somebody made in God's image brings incredible significance to life. And to say, I'm here to serve others, to help others. Remember that scene from, from Les Mis or Jean Valjean? He's been a prisoner all his life. No opportunities, injustice, injustice, injustice. And then he finally gets out and there's a priest that gives him an opportunity. And, and, and he steals from that priest. And the priest doesn't throw him in jail. Instead he says, with this silver I've ransomed your soul from evil. Now go and be a new man. And he changes his name. And he becomes a, a very wealthy, very influential business owner. But he says, this business isn't just about providing services, though it is. But what I'm going to count, though I'm going to count you know, purchasing orders and, and supplies, it's going to be about serving others. And he begins to see his employees as people he can serve and take care of. And he wants to do unto others as that priest did unto him because he experienced grace. I got a chance this week to visit with uh, some friends who built a company. Hadn't been there in about seven years. About seven years ago, they had a, a goal of building big brands and hiring the working poor who couldn't find jobs and couldn't sustain, and therefore marriages were breaking up and families were breaking up. He said about seven or eight years ago, we had one of our first employees came to us and said, would you hire me? I know you're looking for the poor, but I'm a felon. And they wrestled with that. They put systems in place to check and to, to see if they're willing to, to go through a certain process to be rehabilitated and to be faithful. And... And what they found over the years of matrixes is that these ex-felons who they gave a second chance to are not only good employees, they're their best employees. And they went from hiring one out of ten to nine out of ten being felons because these folks were so impacted by getting a second chance. And he says it's been so amazing the last year, 11 years to see our business building a great brand but also seeing marriages put back together, to see families put back together, to see people realizing they can provide again, they can care again, they can love again. He said... I'm seeing every day at work, not just as doing work, but serving people and serving our city. And the matrix they've created have been so powerful that there's larger companies here in Cincinnati who are looking at their matrixes and saying, you know, maybe we should reconsider how we might find ways to impact and change the city in ways we've never thought of before. Let's wrestle with leaving a legacy that makes our life more than just about us. Let's go back to what David said to Solomon on that deathbed. When he pulled Solomon aside, he said, Solomon, Solomon, prove yourself to be a man. What does a man do? What does a leader do? What does an other-focused ambassador of a kingdom do, male or female? It learns about a selfless God who serves and prioritizes others and says, I want that kingdom. I want to be ambassador of that kingdom where I am. I want to walk in that. I want to practice that. I want to prioritize that. I want to organize my life around that. And then he says, what you and I want. Don't you want to prosper in everything you do? He says, Solomon, if you will do this, if you will pursue this, if you will prioritize this, you will find joy you've never had before. I'm not saying you're not satisfied now and not joyful now. A builder of a kingdom can bring satisfaction, but it will never be as satisfied as an ambassador 
of a greater kingdom. Let's listen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every father, every grandfather that has impacted us, that has inspired us, who has given us nuggets of wisdom, incredible examples of faith and hard work and love and strength. But God, I thank you also that you are the ultimate heavenly father. And that wherever our fathers made mistakes, you were the perfection of their mistakes. And God, you don't work with perfect people, and none of us are perfect dads. We're not even close. We're painfully aware of our mistakes, painfully aware of where we need to be on Mercy Mountain. But I thank you, Father, that you don't call us to be perfect fathers. You call us to increasingly pattern ourselves after the perfect father. And we thank you for coming alongside us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for, for, for bragging on us to the angels in heaven. Father, you so love being a father that you sent your son to come to earth to make a way that all of us could know the ultimate father. A father who, who loves us, forgives us past, present, and future that we can build our identity on the security of how you see us, not some arbitrary number from our culture. And we thank you for that love. We thank you for that care. And we thank you for the peace that comes from that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. We have a happy, happy Father's Day to you. And we'll see you next week as we begin a brand new series called Self-Portraits. Thanks so much.